It's true, I'm an elder. (laughs) I know, I know, it's hard to believe when you look at me. I'm young, I'm handsome. I always thought those elders were a bunch of crotchety old men. They are. I'm the exception. Before we um, open God's word, and if you want to jump ahead, and uh, we'll be into John chapter 18 in a few minutes. But I feel the need to offer a couple of disclaimers. You can sign on the dotted line somewhere else, at least in your imagination, if you can live with these. And if not, it doesn't hurt my feelings if you get up and leave. But first of all, disclaimer number one, I'm not a preacher. Never been to seminary a day in my life. I saw a seminary once. But I'm a teacher. I'm one of those rare folks who likes to hang out with middle school kids. So let it be known before we get into this that if you choose to disrupt this class, chew your gum too loudly, or fall asleep, you risk public embarrassment. Disclaimer number two, I love this church. Can I get an amen? Amen. I love Joel and Matt and the worship team and how they can just kind of lead me in and drop me off at the throne of the king of the universe. I love how Rod can take scripture and opening up the cultural context and The cool graphics that Libby really is the one who creates. (laughs) But I can understand it with a depth I could never understand Scripture before. I love when Dan Mike preaches because he's got this ability to take something I've read uh, many times and just squeeze it out and I got new meaning. Disclaimer number two, you don't get any of that today. (laughs) You're stuck with me. But today, I want to challenge you to face the truth of Jesus Christ and become a bit more introspective. How am I doing with this? How are my actions, my reactions, my interactions? Am I adequately reflecting the love of Jesus to a world that needs them. And so with those two disclaimers on the table, I invite you to turn to John chapter 18, and we'll be starting at verse 28. I've asked my friend and colleague at school, Maria Hoekstra, to uh, read the word for us this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. 
So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Thanks, Maria. You may have a seat. When I was a kid, um, I was a reader. But back when I was younger, many of the books that caught my attention were of this genre that had a whole bunch of titles all under the same basic category. For instance, The Hardy Boys, Mystery at Black Rock, Mystery of the castle, mystery up. And basically it was the same story, just told in a different setting. And somehow Frank and Joe always emerged victorious. One of those genres of book though that really caught my attention um, back when I was 10, 11, 12 years old was this collection of books called the We Were There books. We were there at the California Gold Rush, or we were there at the Battle of Antietam. Does anybody remember the? Oh, hey, you guys are old. Yes, we are. That's right. But it was this idea of taking this young reader, 11 or 12-year-old Phil, and trying to put him into a historical situation for the purpose of hoping to understand it a little bit better. I'm going to invite you into Pilate's courtyard right now, as if we were there. Maria already read it, but with that as a setting, feel free to look at God's word again and try to imagine it that way. Now, as we do that, I think there's three important factors we need to add into all of this. First, um, the historical context. If you were here last week, Rod laid this out really quite well. 
Um, this whole idea of crucifixion was a Roman invention. And yet, this, well, let's just say it, this was a railroad job. I think Jesus knew, I know Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus was born so that he could die, so that he could rise again. But this was going to happen. Annas, Caiaphas, Pharisees, they were, they were just trying to ram this thing through. In fact, if you look back a thousand years before this, King David, Psalm 22, is in, just lays out a prophecy about crucifixion, which hadn't even been invented yet. If you want to keep your finger in John 18, just, just I challenge you, page back to Psalm 22 just a moment. The foreshadowing of Abraham and Isaac in the book of Genesis and is obvious. The foreshadowing of how the Passover lamb is slain, the blood on the doorposts, just like Christ's blood on the cross. All of that's coming through in so many foreshadowing ways, but Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words Christ will later choose to use on the cross. Remembering that crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. All who see me, verse 7, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. It's exactly the words that the people around the cross and the one criminal in particular would speak to Jesus the day after this passage that Maria read. Look at verse uh, 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Typically, crucifixion victims would be nailed to the cross while it was on the ground. It would be lifted up and dropped into a hole, and that drop would often separate the shoulders, but bones wouldn't be broken. And so the victim would be up there simply pulling up on separated shoulders so he could get a breath before he couldn't take the pain anymore, and eventually he would die of suffocation. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Who would think about writing, they have pierced my hands and my feet without knowing that this was prophecy that God was pouring into David a long time before Jesus would ever come. I can count my bones, verse 17. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. I think at the cross, it was coming. The second thing I want us to recognize is trying to understand who this pilot was. Of course, when I was a kid, he drove an airplane. That's what I thought. But 
here's how Rome kind of did things. They would come in, they would conquer. Their army was so powerful, so strong, um, that people couldn't rise up. In fact, Rome was pretty smart. They let the people have a little bit of government authority. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or I did this last week, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Zealots, they were all kind of fighting against each other. And in doing so, they couldn't unify and become one strong force. Well, in the meantime, of course, Rome felt like they needed to have somebody there just in case. So in a way, Pilate's kind of like an ambassador, right? Um, but when one gets appointed the United States ambassador to a place, if you get appointed to a place like Tahiti, that's kind of a political favor. If you get appointed to a place like Afghanistan, that might not be such a political favor. Pilate is the recipient of a political favor, but this is not the highest desired place to be because there's so much friction. But he also comes in with the military power behind him. And according to Roman law, only Rome could inflict capital punishment. So how did he get to where he was? What was his job, really? It seems to me his job is to keep the lid on, to control, to suppress. Thing number three I want us to double-check, make sure we understand, this notion of mob mentality. Whew. We've seen it in the last year, haven't we? Perfectly normal individuals who end up getting together and throwing trash cans through windows in downtown or storming the Capitol building. This notion of mob mentality can be quite frightening and scary. I think that's why Jesus gets brought to Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, late at night. Let's keep the lid on. Let's do this quick a minute too yet. That was my mother's phrase. Let's get this done real quick. So that by the time the sun comes up, he's on his way to the cross. Because how otherwise can you explain Hosanna on Sunday and crucify on Thursday? It's this mob mentality thing. But in the center of it all, notice verse 38. Three little words. What is truth? Now, when Pilate asked Jesus this question, 
How many other people are in the room? I don't know. What would I have said if Pilate had asked me that question? I don't know. But I think that Pilate wasn't necessarily seeking an answer. I don't think Pilate even threw this question out there as a discussion starter. I think Pilate threw it out as almost a rhetorical, oh, what is truth? The ironic thing, of course, is the truth is standing right in front of them. I love the Gospel of John for so many different reasons. There's, so, there's several different themes that John just weaves into this. Check it out sometime. The notion of light and darkness is a constant theme in the book of John. Um, Nicodemus comes to John at night, and then in John chapter 19, he comes to Jesus on the cross taking his body off before it gets to be dark. The woman who's caught in adultery, John 8. But as dawn comes, as, as the light shines, everybody melts away. These, but there's this theme of truth that shows up so many times. John chapter 1. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's full of grace and truth. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This notion of truth is affixed to Jesus' person 26 times in the book of John. So when Pilate says, what is truth, it's well, duh, it's right there in front of you. It's Jesus. John chapter 8 says this. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. To the Jews, Jesus then said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, I had one of those being confronted with the truth moments that will forever be one of those markers along my journey. About uh, four years ago, um, I had cancer and was actually fighting for my life. For those of you who are curious, it was late stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. For those of you who don't know what those words mean, don't worry about it. I deal with middle school. Sometimes they know things, sometimes they don't. But I remember being in the hospital um, for a stem cell transplant, and um, 
I don't remember a lot of that month-long stay, but one of those moments of clarity occurred to me when a friend uh, came, and he said to me, you know, Phil, when you beat this cancer, you win. But if cancer beats you, you win. And the truth set me free. It was a it was overwhelming when I made that realization, when it came to me that way. I couldn't lose because I knew the truth. All right. So let's evaluate truth real quick. I mean, there's all different kinds of truth, am I right? Uh, just listen to the myriad of voices out there. Everybody claims truth. Well, if we categorized them a little bit, we could say this. That there's something called temporary truth. Wet paint. If you see that sign on a park bench, don't sit down. Right? But in a little while... It won't be true anymore. The uh, OCD part of me could never quite understand how in cartoons they could tape the sign wet paint to a park bench. What do you do? Peel it off and repaint it and stick it back on? When is it ever going to stop? <laughs> There's cultural truth. If you are um, a resident of the United States and you get on a city bus and there's maybe one other person in the bus, cultural truth mandates you don't necessarily make eye contact and you sit completely opposite from where that one person is. If you're in South Africa and you're faced with the same situation, it's culturally acceptable to go next to that person and sit next to them in the same seat. Anything else would be considered root. Cultural truth. I love to mess with people. So one time, um, elevator opens, it's crowded. I come in, I don't turn around. <laughs> I just stand there. Oh, you guys, it's fun. You should try it. Nobody made eye contact with me. Everybody was interested in their shoes for that whole time. Cultural truth. There's empirical truth, right? You take all the evidence that you can gather, and then you try to package it up into some form of truth. Um, I love science, but at some point... I can't agree with taking everything scientific and arriving at the notion of evolution. A lot of people can take it, empirical truth, turn it into the theory of evolution. I can't do that. Problem is, some creationists try to do the same thing, and then things just get really ugly and they start arguing a lot. 
again, like middle school. There's agnostic truth, meaning, yeah, truth is out there somewhere, but there's no way we're ever going to figure it out. It's kind of a hopeless vibe. But then, of course, there's absolute truth. Truth that's true today, it'll be true tomorrow, here and there and everywhere for everyone. And the category that we need to keep watching out for then is relative truth, right? Which essentially says there's no absolute truth. What's true for you doesn't necessarily mean it's true for me. And Pilate asks the question, what is truth? And it's kind of like the fuzzy dice on your rear view mirror. They're just left to dangle right there in front of your face. What is truth? Edward Abbey is one of my very favorite um, non-Christian, PG-13, almost rated R authors. So don't go out looking for him and think you're going to find spiritual insights there. But here's what he said once. He said, truth is always the enemy of power and power the enemy of truth. Pilate had the power. Jesus was the truth. Is it any wonder they couldn't get along? The truth was standing right in front of Pilate. Truth is standing right in front of you and me. God's promises are sure. God's redemption is real. God's word, true. God's plan is certain. What are we doing with it? Now, I think we need to back off just a moment here and consider this. There's a key idea that's out there. I know the truth. But I can't completely understand the truth. I can feel the truth. But I can't necessarily fully explain and rationalize the truth. Because if Jesus Christ is truth, why would I worship it if I could fully explain it? It's kind of like Peter, right? Peter knew the truth when he stepped out of the boat. When he tried to rationalize or understand the truth, that's when he started sinking. So what's the missing link? Well, you know and I know, it's faith. At some point, we've got to take the truth of who Jesus is 
and accept it on faith, even if we can't explain it or quantify it or measure it. It's that step of faith. Hebrews reminds us, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we can't see. Sure and certain truth, but we can't see it. We can't see it fully, not yet. I love the way 1 Corinthians 13 puts this. It's an important reminder for all of us. Love never fails. That's the truth. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Yeah, I read Hardy Boys. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. The absolute truth to the question of what is truth is Jesus. So you want the truth? It's being offered to us. Here it is. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Romans chapter 8 can take it a step further for us. Listen. Because of that truth, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Romans chapter 8, 14. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear. That's the truth. Verse 16, we are God's children. Verse 28, for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Romans, I'm sorry, verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where truth leads us. Now, go back to that notion of we were there. The tricky thing, I think, is that when we get into 
really evaluating history, we love to find fault with this person or perhaps how this one was the hero or who was the good guy, who was the bad guy. I think judging Pilate for his blindness to the truth that this moment really gains us nothing. Because I think the question is left dangling for you and for me. His name is Jeff Kloha. He said this about this uh, topic. Is it any wonder that Pontius Pilate could not see the truth when it was standing right in front of him? He was used to being the one who decided what was true and what was not. And here, thrust in front of him, is a small, weak, inoffensive man who lots of people wanted dead. This Jesus did not have an army or weapons or wealth or power, none that Pilate could see. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked? The answer seemed obvious. There was no king of the Jews. Rome was in power. The claim is absurd that anyone could be king of the Jews, let alone this guy standing in front of Pilate. To his observation, it was a true statement to say that Jesus was not king of the Jews. Just look at him. But we still have the same question in front of us, right? What is truth? I think we've gotten it wrong in the past. I know how I have. I think when you look back, especially the last 100, 150 years, at the Christian church in America, we've gotten it wrong. That truth is whether you're Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist, and we end up getting so disunified rather than staying focused on what unifies us. I think we got this wrong when we started getting into mission work. Even the the French uh, voyagers and the explorers here, so often that notion of cultural truth was mixed in with the absolute truth of Jesus, and you had to act this way first, or be that way first, or learn English first, or you wear a suit or tie first. So let's get refocused on that just a moment and say, what is truth? Remembering that we don't need to worry about explaining all the details, but it's being asked of us so that we can step out in faith being certain and sure. I want to wrap up with a parable I found. I, I, I tried to figure out who to give credit to, but about 20 people said that they wrote it. Kind of like middle school again. 
But this, it captures for me this idea of accepting the truth of who Jesus is without fully understanding what's coming. Once upon a time, twins were conceived in the womb. Weeks passed, the babies grew. As their awareness grew, their joy increased. Isn't it fantastic we've been conceived, said the one. Isn't it wonderful to be alive? The twins began to explore their world when they discovered the umbilical cord that bound them to their mother and nourished them, they sang for joy. What great love our mother has for us. She even shares her own life with us. However, as the weeks grew into months, they noticed how they were changing. What does this mean, asked the line. Well, it means our stay in this world will soon end, the other replied. I don't want to leave, the first retorted. I'd rather stay here forever. We don't have a choice, the other replied. But maybe there is life after birth. Oh, how could there be, the first asked. We will lose our lifeline, and how could we live without it? No, birth is the end of all things. So one of them went into a state of deep anxiety, asking if conception, I'm sorry, asking if conception ends at birth, what's the meaning of life? It's absurd. Maybe there is no mother behind all of this after all. Oh, but she must exist, said the first. Otherwise, how could we have got here? And how could we survive? Did you ever see our mother, asked the first? Maybe she only lives in our imagination. We invented her to make ourselves feel better because in this way we can better understand the meaning of life. So the last days in the mother's womb were filled with thousands of questions and a great fear. Finally, the moment of birth came. When the twins left their mother's womb, their world, they opened their eyes. They cried out, for what they saw was beyond their greatest dreams. What is truth doesn't answer all our questions. But if we see Jesus Christ as our truth. He takes away any fears about today, tomorrow, what's coming. We live with an incomplete picture. Someday, we'll understand it more fully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Pilate. I know that's kind of a weird way to start a prayer. But thank you for allowing him to ask this question, which should challenge us daily. Thank you for just leaving it there to 
be in the front of our imaginations as we consider who you are and try to wrestle with who you are. But help us to accept that ultimately Pilate was staring directly at the answer to his question. Help us to do the same and allow our lives to be characterized by your love for us and the fact that we have a hope and a future that's rooted in you. In Jesus' name, amen.